From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. The Greens have a lot of clout in this parliament. They have the lion's share of the balance of power in the Senate. When bills are opposed by the coalition, the government can't get its legislation through without them. On the other hand, the Greens are constrained. There is not much on which they will be comfortable bedfellows with the coalition. Currently, the Greens are flexing their muscles on the government's legislation on a safeguard mechanism for its climate policy and also on its bills for a proposed National Reconstruction Fund and a housing fund. Today, Greens leader Adam Bant joins us to discuss these and other issues. Adam Bant, let's start with the government's legislation to implement its climate policy, that is, the legislation for safeguards mechanism. Initially, you said the Greens would pass this if the government banned new coal and gas mines. The government immediately said no, and uh, that seems a, a firm no. So you'll have to be back to talking with Labor on the mechanism. Do you think a deal will be reached eventually to pass this legislation? We put an offer on the table to the government that involved a lot of compromise on our part. We have concerns about this being Tony Abbott's reheated mechanism, which has never worked in the first place. We have concerns about the fact that existing coal and gas can keep on polluting just by buying you know, offsets on the other side of the country. We have concerns about Labor's low targets, which will see the end of the Great Barrier Reef and not do what the climate science says. Our offer was that we would put all of those concerns aside, pass the legislation and the mechanism in full if the government agreed not to make the problem worse by opening new coal and gas projects. Now, they've said what they've said since, but I think their position is ultimately untenable. Things have changed. Pacific Island neighbours now are asking us to stop expanding coal and gas. The government wants to host a climate summit here um, the UN Secretary General and the World Scientists, the International Energy Agency, are all uh, their cries are all getting louder that we can't meet climate targets by opening new coal and gas projects. And I don't think the government has made the case for the need to do it. We've said we'll have discussions in good faith. What we've put on the table from the beginning was an offer, not an ultimatum. The ball, from our perspective, is now in the government's court. The ball's in the government's court to justify why they think we need new coal and gas. We'll, of course, keep talking, and you've seen in the past that we have reached agreement on a number of matters, but I think the thing about this parliament is, and I'm not sure the penny's dropped for the government on this yet, this parliament is the government does not have a majority in both houses of parliament, and now it's over to the government to decide whether they're prepared to shift from their starting position. Well, obviously, there's going to be a lot of argy-bargy, but can you really see yourselves voting with the coalition to block this safeguard mechanism? The problem with this safeguard mechanism is it'll see the problem get worse. It bakes in new coal and gas projects. The uh, Labor's first emissions projections that they put out at the end of last year say that all of the Morrison-backed gas projects 
will go ahead under the safeguard mechanism. So I think people, certainly those who have been paying close attention and looking at it, have realised that pollution from coal and gas might in fact go up under Labor's mechanism. And their answer to that is, oh, well, it's okay because they'll buy some tree planting permits on the other side of the country. But the objective of good climate policy should be to cut pollution from coal and gas. Coal and gas are the main causes of the climate crisis. We've got to get pollution from coal and gas down. But Labor's safeguarding mechanism says pollution from coal and gas can go up. And in fact, they even forecast gas pollution to go up. So we have real concerns about a plan that will make the problem worse. And I think the more that people look at it, the more it is understood that actually there's a reason that Anthony Albanese stood up in Parliament in the last sitting week and said this should be passed because Woodside backs it, Rio Tinto backs it, the Minerals Council backs it. If you have a look at who its strongest backers are, it's the fossil fuel industry. But if you block it, emissions will go up even further, won't they? Well, emissions will go up if we keep opening new coal and gas mines, and that is a sticking point between us and Labor. If we pass a law through Parliament on Monday to cut pollution, but then Labor goes out and opens new gas mines or new coal mines on Tuesday, then we undo all of the good work that's just been done in Parliament. And that is a real concern for us. We're not after the perfect, we're after the bare minimum, which is stop making the problem worse while we're trying to fix it. The Greens are currently attacking Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek over her decision to approve new coal seam gas wells in Queensland. More broadly, how do you see Plibersek's performance as Environment Minister? We need to take into account the climate damage of approving new projects. And at the moment, Australia's laws don't require the Environment Minister to take into account climate damage when approving new projects. And there's certainly been no evidence that that's something that the minister is taking into account. So on the one hand, you've got the minister rightly backing the state of the environment report that was buried by the Morrison government that says that climate crisis is the biggest threat to Australia's environment and biodiversity. And yet, on the other hand, being willing to approve a coal mine out to the second half of this century and 116 new gas wells and being very clear publicly to say that she's willing to approve more of them. That is of grave concern to us, and the climate should be taken into account when these decisions are made. And if there's a gap in the law that the government says is affecting its ability to do that, then let's change the law so that climate damage is taken into account before the minister goes ahead and um, looks at new coal and gas projects. So is this a performance fail? Well, I think there's a bigger problem with the law, but I am very disappointed not to hear the Environment Minister talking more about the climate consequences of new coal and gas mines on Australia's environment. It is just obvious that um, if you make the climate crisis worse, then Australia's environment will be under threat. And you can't say, um, on the one hand, that you're concerned about climate change, and then on the other go and give the tick to new coal and gas projects. So is she uh, accessible to you or is there no uh, ability to consult on some of these issues? Look, our 
portfolio holders regularly liaise with their counterparts in the government. I think it's a, it's a broader question about what approach this Labor government wants to take to coal and gas because the calls are growing. They've been coming from the Greens within Parliament, but they've also um, come from the environment groups and indeed from Anthony Albanese when he was opposition environment spokesperson to amend our environment laws to include taking climate into account and it's often called the climate trigger. So before a minister looks at approving new projects, they have to take into account the impact on the climate crisis of approving any new projects. The fact that that is something that now is gaining widespread support, but we still haven't changed the laws to do that is a fail and goes to a broader point, which is we could get a lot done in this parliament if we wanted to. Like The Liberals are a long way from ever coming back to forming government and they, they're dealing themselves out of relevance in the Senate. But there's a capacity for this to be a golden era of reform in this parliament and for us to pass laws that tackle the climate crisis and that protect the environment, that tackle the cost of living crisis. But at the moment, the only obstacle is Labor, like Labor's willingness to do what needs to be done and that would in fact be very popular. That is what is proving to be the biggest obstacle. Now, just to turn briefly to two other pieces of legislation that you're contesting, the proposed $15 billion National Reconstruction Fund to boost industry manufacturing and the $10 billion Housing Fund. What are your problems with these funds and what would it take to get you over the line with each of them? Well, with the Reconstruction Fund, we don't want to see that turn into a slush fund for coal and gas. And The analogy here that the government draws is with the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and the government says, well, we want to set up effectively an investment bank that can assist manufacturing in the same way that Clean Energy Finance Corporation was set up to assist clean energy. Now, of course, the Clean Energy Finance Corporation is something that the Greens and Labor established together in the power sharing parliament of 2010 and it's been a resounding success. Part of the reason it's been so successful is that it's built in to the legislation that it can't be used to expand the fossil fuel industry. Um, We are pushing for similar protections for the reconstruction fund so that a future minister or uh, if there's a change of government, they can't use it to fund coal and gas infrastructure. Okay, now on the housing fund, which uh, would... uh help finance affordable and social housing. What are your problems there? Well, this is a plan that will see the housing crisis get worse. Even if this plan is fully implemented, the waiting list for social and affordable housing will be longer at the end of it than it is now. Not only that, but it's not, people talk about it as a $10 billion investment in housing. It's not. It's $10 billion that is then essentially put aside for a gamble on the stock market And if it makes returns in a given year, that money gets put into social housing. And if not, then there's no money available for social housing. And of course, last year, the Future Fund, which is meant to be the vehicle for this investment, lost money. So if Labor's plan had gone ahead, there'd have been zero for housing under this fund. Not only that, it locks in a cap on funding. So even if in the circumstance more money is made through this stock market gamble, there's a cap that's locked in in real terms, which means an effective funding cut of the amount of money that will go into 
housing. There's nothing in it for renters. We're in a rental crisis that the government just doesn't seem to get. Rents are growing seven times faster than wages, but there's nothing in here for renters. And you are now seeing a chorus of calls, not just from the Greens, but from builders and others who are all saying, this just does not tackle the scale of the crisis. It's no wonder that the problem would continue to get worse if this is what the government's going to do. So we've been pushing for a minimum guaranteed spend on $5 billion on social and affordable housing and just draw the parallels with schools. I mean, if the stock market didn't make a return during any given year, you wouldn't say you're going to cut funding for public schools, but that's exactly the approach the government's taking to public and affordable housing. We're saying guarantee a minimum spend, double rent assistance so that there's something immediately for renters, put aside some money to build First Nations housing as well. So we're wanting to see a real and guaranteed investment in housing that will benefit renters because the government has said this is their centrepiece housing policy and a housing policy sees the situation get worse is, is to our minds, not a good housing policy. The government condemns the coalition as the noalition. Do you have any fears that the Greens could become seen as the party that's saying no on a range of things rather than facilitating change? Well, I just don't think the record bears that out. And if you look at the climate legislation that passed last year, it wasn't our preferred target. It's too low. It means the death of the Great Barrier Reef. It's not what the science is after. But we worked with the government to improve the legislation and we passed it because it's a small step on the road to tackling the climate emergency. We did that with the electric vehicles legislation as well. We managed to improve that and get a much bigger investment in electric vehicles. We saw it towards the end of last year with the energy legislation. We historically had concerns about the idea of a gas reservation because we were worried that reserving gas for domestic use could potentially slow down the transition to renewables. But we managed to reach an arrangement with the government where there would be a big investment to help businesses and households get off gas and onto renewables. And we passed the legislation. Earlier this year, of course, we did not support the government's move to wind back disclosure in superannuation and the government's regulations were defeated in the Senate in part because the Greens voted for a defeat. So we are willing to vote according to our uh, policy when we think the government is, in that instance, reneging on a promise to put a million dollar fine on bankers. So we are prepared to stand up and vote in the Senate accordingly. But history shows also a willingness in this term of parliament to work with the government. And that's why I come back to the point that I said before. At the last election, there was a big vote for change that is now reflected in the parliament with Labor's vote going backwards, the Greens vote going up and more third voices in parliament than ever before. This really could be a golden era of significant reform that tackles the big challenges that we're facing and we're saying to the government, let's use this opportunity. Don't pass laws that appear to deal with a problem, but in fact see the problem get worse. Let's instead work together and get legislation through Parliament that starts to make people's lives better. Can I ask you about your former colleague, Lydia Thorpe? At the weekend, she caused a stir when she briefly disrupted the Mardi Gras march. Did she do the right thing or the wrong thing? Oh, look, I'm, Lydia Thorpe is able to um, speak for herself. I'm not going to 
um, pass comment on that. Uh, that's ultimately this is a um, an event that is by and for the LGBTIQ plus community, and I'll leave it up to them and the organisers and those who are involved to um, to comment on that. Uh, look, I was there. I was part of the rally. I wasn't aware that that had happened um, during the rally. I was marching as part of the Greens. Um, and I was proud to lend my support, but I'll let others make comment on that. Let's turn to The Voice. The Greens support a yes vote. Do you agree that the government should give more detail or are you satisfied with what's known about The Voice? I don't think the call for more detail is the issue with respect, and I understand that that might be coming from a variety of sectors for a variety of reasons, but to me, that is not the primary concern. What we're concerned about as the Greens, we wanted to make sure that the other elements of the statement from the heart are also progressed and that we don't lose sight of those, namely truth and treaty. We still believe strongly that uh, it's essential to getting justice for First Nations people and justice with First Nations people in this country, that we have a truth-telling process and that we have treaty with our First Nations owners and very pleased that during the discussions with the government, we saw the government make public commitments to begin the process of a Makarata commission, and they've made further comments about it publicly since. That's something that we will, of course, continue to hold the government to account on. But we want to see the referendum succeed, we want to see the legislation pass through Parliament and the referendum succeed will be an important step on the road towards First Nations justice in this country. And so we'll be campaigning, yes, and the issues that matter to us that we will want to press around truth and treaty, we're still going to press with the government as well. You've had extensive consultations during this process with First Nations people. Out of those consultations, what sort of model do you think there should be for The Voice? Look, that's a very important question and one that certainly for our First Nations members within the Greens, a critical one. And there's obviously a little bit of experience on this with the South Australian model that is being progressed. And that's something that... Could you just outline that for us? Well, the South Australian model has a has an emphasis on self-determination and representation. And that's the process that they've chosen in South Australia. Obviously, if, if the referendum succeeds, which we hope it will, then of course, the next step would be legislation in Parliament. And so we are going through the process now, including through consulting our First Nations members, to be in a position to have a clear answer to that question about what the legislation and what the model should look like. But that's something that on our timeline at the moment we'll do after the referendum succeeds. And our focus at the moment is on ensuring that the referendum does succeed. And then, of course, if and when it comes to Parliament and we're in a position of establishing the voice, we hope to have had, well, we will have had um, consultation, including with our own First Nations members, and we'll have a clear position to put on the table at that time. You're pushing hard on treaty. What should be the timetable for concluding a treaty? I think it's more important that the process gets started rather than there be a clear timetable for conclusion. Victoria has shown that you can have the processes running side by side and the moves to, and the discussion towards truth and treaty that's happening in Victoria 
require a great deal of consultation and agreement at the clan level. And of course, those issues would have to be dealt with federally as well. Really, the, the critical thing is we get started because it could and should be a process that involves extensive consultation and discussion. And certainly that's what Victoria bears out. The point that we've been making is that we don't need to wait to get started and we should be getting started soon. Now, just finally, the Greens have a great deal of power in this parliament and yet a a note of frustration comes through from you that you can't get this uh, what you call golden age of reform going. How are you finding the challenges of exercising the considerable power that you have potentially and how is the government to deal with? Are Are they difficult? Are you frustrated by it? We have good lines of communication with the government and certainly it has dawned on government ministers that they will need to work with the Greens and others to get their legislation through the Senate and so those discussions are happening. It's more that the government is not making the most of the opportunities they've got. This government has been busy but timid and we have a real chance to tackle the crises that people are facing and and they're not grasping it. And I think what we're going to see during this parliament is the Liberals become a far-right irrelevance, Labor becomes a centre-right party that's still wedded to neoliberal economics, and the Greens are advancing the social democratic alternative. I understand the government wants to project that they are in majority and that everything was within their control, but their vote went backwards at the election. And we saw a repeat of that at the Victorian election that happened afterwards as well. And at some point, the penny needs to drop with the government that they will have to work with others if they want to not only get their agenda through, but tackle the the problems that people are facing. I'm not sure that's happened yet. And I understand why in the first few months of the government last year, they may have wanted to take an approach that says they're just going to implement the commitments that they made at the election. But now we're in a period where we've got new challenges facing the world. Uh, We've got our closest neighbours pleading with us to stop opening coal and gas. Inflation is really hurting people. And we've got to deal with the challenges as they arise. And that, for this government, is going to mean working with others in the parliament. Adam Bant, thank you very much for talking with us today. And that's all for this Conversations Politics podcast. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. We'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevere. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.